0: All right, this session is on biology, so everything that we've talked about up to now is all, is all geared towards making sure that the biology is capable of doing, including the plant, but that all the biology is capable of, of fulfilling its purpose and doing everything that it knows how to do. Um, we're not trying to control the system, we're just trying to impart the right conditions to it. And um, I invariably have to deal with people that emphasize one aspect. The, the biological school of thought right now is the big one that's flying. And, and you know, you've got different aspects where people are doing really well. And again, I, everybody always comes to me and asks me, well, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? And it's kind of with that attitude of this doesn't agree with what you're saying. So how are you going to explain this one? And I don't always know all the details. So I can't say, well, I can't tell you. you know, I say I can't tell you. You know everything because I don't know all the details about it, but uh, I do know that without these other things, it won't last. And the other thing is, it may work here, but is it going to work there? Like, there's a fellow named Gabe Brown in the U.S. Have you heard of Gabe Brown? He's building fertility up in, in uh, South Dakota, North Dakota. I think it's North Dakota. Um, and it's it's working really well I mean you can take certain aspects of these if you have other um, other aspects in a sufficient place where the biology can work with it but if you were to take that and go to the southern part of the U.S. in highly weathered soils where there's just nothing to work with it's not going to work and so it comes back to the whosoever principle again you know so if, if some things I'm not gonna I'm not going to say oh well they're doing the wrong thing because I don't think I have a right to say that but I, I you know I need to know is that going to apply across the board anywhere if I'm gonna if, if somebody needs to apply that but if it's working and you can use biology and it's increasing the capacity for life then I'm not going to say I'm not going to object to it it's not it's not I don't have the right to say this it's not working I mean people using uh, sea minerals whether they were talking about the sea minerals and um biochar is another one where some people seem to be having you know tremendous success. And I've actually had some really good success with it in certain conditions. In other conditions, we haven't really seen any, um, any benefit from it. And so I just stay with what the tried and true is, and I try to keep up with what this other stuff's going on. And uh, I remember uh, Neil was asked one time about something they were doing in the Middle East, and it just seemed, you know, how in the world are they doing that? But apparently they were doing it, and I just answer like he does. Well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how to do it, and so you know, unless I, until I get an understanding of of what it is, I just stay with what I know works consistently. And you know, like I said, I don't feel like I have the re- the responsibility to tell somebody, oh, that you can't do that because it's not supposed to work. <laughs> it's not that's not up to me. So anyway, so we're gonna we're gonna look here at I call this excuse me, I call this the unseen agencies because you don't see them. They're working. It's kind of like, I think, the angels. They're working out of sight to foster life, to encourage life. And 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 we don't see them, but they play a tremendous role. And the more that we provide the, the means of them playing that larger role, the more of that role they play. So uh, that's why I call it that. I don't know if that's, you know, Uh, reasonable to do that it just i I just think you know we don't see them but they're doing they're there and they're they're working behind the scenes and they're doing a tremendous job of of making sure that life um prospers however they can so so let's we're going to look at the if i plug that in this is the uh the soil food web and again you'll see here that there's everything is connected to everything else and everything is dependent on everything else and everything is giving to something else in, in this system it's a mutualistic system that's interdependent and it, and it works really well with the principle of freely you've received freely give as soon as you, as soon as you um, inject, interject into that I've got to get mine then you know when the, the 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 problem is that there's not enough for everybody, and somebody loses their food source. Then hostility starts taking over. And when we talked about, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit here how biology can go from uh, pathogenic and destructive to probiotic and benign. And it's all a matter of you know if do they have their food source and are they playing a role? They are they fulfilling their purpose in in the growing system in life. And it's just like us, you know. Take our food source away and, you know, people turn pretty hostile in a hurry and they resort to all kinds of other things to, to try to secure, secure a food source. So it's about restoring, you know, the right character to the, the system again. Um, and I, I, won't, I was just showing you this to see that there's, there's steps in this and they all play a role in the process of providing fertility and maintaining fertility and providing nourishment to the plant. So we're going to look at these kind of as as individual components um, and some of the roles that they play in in that food web, and the first one we're going to look at is bacteria. I just put some pictures up here of, you know, to kind of give you an idea. There are lots of different, there's several different kinds of bacteria in that picture. but there's different types and the first one we're going to look at there is the nitrogen fixers these are the these are the bacteria who will actually you know fix nitrogen out of the air like you talked about this morning you know and they can under the right conditions they can continually supply <clears throat> that nitrogen to the growing system and the interesting thing about it is there's a there's a communication that goes on between the plant and the microbes and when the plant needs more it kind of says here here's a few more uh, using one of Dr. Elaine Ingham's words, here's a few more cookies, give me some uh, you, how about trading for some nitrogen and it's really energy compounds, they're, they're providing the photosynthate, the energy that the, the bacteria can't generate on its own and in exchange the, the bacteria says okay I'll trade you nitrogen for the it might be other things but in this case um, so you have the rhizobium bacteria that are symbiotic they depend on a relationship with um, legume Type plants, and then the Azotobacter are free-living nitrogen-fixing uh, bacteria, and so are the cyanobacteria. They don't require that symbiotic relationship. Did you ever wonder when you drive down the road and you see natural systems and they're green and nobody put any fer- nitrogen on them, didn't put any fertilizer on them? Well, how does that happen? The reason it the reason it happens there's nobody's disturbing the disturbing the the growing system, and so it's established. Uh, I'm going to talk about this tonight but it's established stability at the level of growth that it can maintain it at it can't go any higher than that Um, and so it's established the system the biological systems and everything else that can maintain life at that level and nobody's nobody's putting any input into it. Um, Then you have the nitrifiers Uh, they're aerobic and they're actually releasing nitrogen uh, and making it available to the plants by the breaking down of of, uh, nitrogen materials. The denitrifiers are anaerobic and they actually uh, cause nitrogen to return to the air. They return it to a gas. Because they're anaerobic they're pulling the oxygen off to get oxygen because they have to have, even the anaerobic organisms have to have oxygen they just pull it out from other sources and so they're taking the oxygen off the nitrate to get the oxygen and that Takes it back as a gas back into the atmosphere on it. Um, the fourth one is decomposers. Uh, those are primarily actinomycetes. Do you ever, when you smell the dirt after a rain, or if you, that smell after a rain, or you pick dirt up and you smell it and it has that earthy smell? Well, that smell comes from the activity of actinomycetes in the soil. And so you can tell how vigorous that activity is by the smell of your soil. If you pick your soil up and it has no smell, um, well, there's not a whole lot of that going on, activity going on. Whereas if you pick it up and it has that really earthy kind of smell to it, you've got you know, vigorous actinomycetes acti- activity going on in the soil, including others. And all are required. I don't have on here the, the, the denitrifiers are the biggest problem here. There are some there are some bacteria that can behave behave in a pathogenic way, but they don't always behave that way. It depends on whether they have their food source or not. Okay, the next the next group, and um, I'll, I'll talk about something after I get done explaining this. The, the the balance between the bacterial and the fungal populations in the soil here in a minute, but. Uh, you have the saprophytes that live off of dying organic, you know, decaying organic matter, um, breaking things down, you know, decomposing uh, organic materials. You have mutualists, and the mutualists are most of what people. If you've heard of mycorrhizal fungi before and the importance of it, well, that's what these mutualists are. They establish a mutual relationship, just like the rhizobium bacteria do with the roots of the plant uh, and there's the, the VAM fungi which is an endofungi that stands for vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizae so it's easier just to say VAM fungi than all of that um, and some of these they, they actually put their roots right into the cells the root cells uh, and the others put it in between the root cells on it and the Iroquois, uh fungi is actually associated with the um, there's the ericaceous plants and it, and only ericoid fungi can establish a mutualistic relationship with those plants. Blueberries is one of those. Um, rhododendrons, azaleas, they're all and you know I tried to find one time an inoculant for blueberries and you can't get one commercially yet. I, they have a hard time for some reason. They have they're having a hard time you know artificially you know. Growing the the fungi, but you can get the other two as inoculants. And I encourage people if you're if you're um, if you're really just starting out in a and the soil's in poor condition that you know inoculating with a bam fungi with a with a mycorrhizal fungi is a good idea. Why is that? Uh, when I do when I do work with fruit growers, you know, a lot of times they'll want to just fertilize down the tree line because they've been told that the, the roots of the tree don't go any further than the drip line of the tree and so they'll only fertilize along the tree line underneath it they won't fertilize the whole field but actually trees will put roots out as much as 50 percent further than the drip line and even even if they didn't uh, put roots out that far the mycorrhizal fungi will cover the entire area and if you establish that relationship, well then it draws, brings water to the tree it brings particularly phosphorus to the tree in exchange for again those, those photosynthates for the energy compounds and they develop that relation where you, you begin tapping a much broader um, area for nutrition, for nutri- nutritional resources and um, so they say, so I, when I say you should broadcast the whole area you fertilize the whole area, not just the tree line and the other reason for that is you want the whole area healthy, and you don't want you know you've got the fertility down the tree line, and then in between the trees you've got poor fertility where you're just inviting problems in to into your growing environment. So I have guy I'll have guys tell me, well, then I'll have to mow more. And I said, well, that's a good thing because it, that's a, when it's that residue breaks down, it's increasing the fertility in that area, and those trees are going to do even better um, on it. But you know, people are pushed up against the wall financially you know most of the time to, to be able to, so they're trying to do the minimum they can and I said well you're still better off broadcasting you know out over the whole area and because then the, the, the fungi will go and take on you know go after that whole area then the tree will still get it So um, then of course you have pathogenic fungi like uh, some of them are Pythium, Rhizoctonia, Phytophthora and Verticillium. Um, these organisms don't always behave in a pathogenic fashion. When when they have a food source, they don't, they're behave in a more benign fashion, and so it's it's not an issue with these. But they can behave in a pathogenic manner, and so they can do damage, and they do a lot of damage in in agriculture and horticulture because the conditions are not right to to prevent them from doing that on it. Um, now growing systems the the, the ratio of, of bacterial populations to fungal populations is will determine the what's actually growing in that, that soil system more productive more productive soil systems will have almost a, a 50-50 balance between fungi and bacteria in some cases It'll be a little bit higher bacteria wise, but it'll be ba- balanced. As you move in succession to like a deciduous forest, then you begin moving, shifting, and it's more fungi and less bacteria in that. And as you fir- move further into that, it becomes even more uh, imbalanced towards fungi and less bacteria. And the reason for that is, is you're moving into a, a poorer and poorer fertility condition, and the fungi can. Um, pull stuff out of the, the soil uh, and work with breaking stuff down a little bit easier than the, than the bacteria can. But it's not as productive of a, of a environment. Now, on the other side, the practices that a lot of people use using a lot of nitrogen and potassium and everything, they actually push the bacterial populations up above what they sh- should and they don't get the fungal populations that they need and so they create an imbalance. You can create biological imbalances just as much as you can um, chemical imbalances, or air, you know, the lack of air in the soil and everything. And so the most productive growing systems have a balance between those two, and they do different jobs on their bacteria break down simpler like sugars and stuff like that, and have to work with the simpler compounds. and the fungi are able to break down more comp- complex and complicated materials and make them a, and cycle them again. My, my understanding is that the herbaceous crop, for example, does better in bacterial and the woody crops do better in the woody system. Yeah, yeah. so, so uh, like the more greener crops, um, vegetative crops uh, generally prefer a bacterial dominant soil and the, the, uh, the woody crops tend to prefer a, a more fungal dominant. But the best crops grow in a balance in a balanced soil. What the what the plants will do, you know, if the trees obviously are going to be there long term. They're not so that what they'll do is they'll shift by the exudates that they put out, they'll shift the biological population to what they prefer. And so they'll they'll encourage the fungal populations that they want and they'll discourage the bacterial populations. Not because they don't like bacteria but because it's not, it, it doesn't fit with their, their nutritional needs, and so it, you know it's better to have the the balance the way it is. And this happens all the time. Depending on what kind of crop you're growing there and everything, uh, the plant will always shift the bio, biology to what it, it needs in order to grow and and to prosper. Um, let me let me just address. Uh, has anybody been told that they need to rotate crops? Yeah, you can hear that, hole, it's gone. Okay. Um, well, there are pros in there. There, there are, Yeah, that's a good idea, and there's not necessary. It's not necessary in the respect that if you maintain, you know, if, a, if a, like say you grow tomatoes all the time, you grow it in the same spot. The, the tomato plant has actually shifted the biological profile to what it prefers. And so if you plant tomatoes there every time, it's already got it all shifted to what it prefers where the problem comes and if you don't rotate is if you're pulling fertility out of that soil and the chemistry becomes imbalanced that's when you start having problems and so as long as you maintain the fertility the way it needs to be you can plant tomatoes there year after year after year and you'll never develop disease and pest pressure and all that kind of stuff because it's provided for and the plant actually has already got it adjusted the way it wants when it is an advantage is, for example, if you grow a lot of different things. Like we don't do it anymore, but we grew like 40 different kinds of vegetables and small fruits and everything. Uh, the, the communities we're in now, corn, beans, and tomatoes, and that, you know, that's predominantly what they want. And we don't have quite the the interest in varieties that like we did in Colorado, where we are now. So and what. Uh, plain fare that they prefer. So, uh, we still grow a lot of stuff for ourselves. But if, if you like, if you're gardening, for example, and you're wanting to maintain your fertility, well, moving stuff around so you don't have to take a soil test from this bed and that bed and that bed, but moving it around so you're you're averaging out, you're balancing out the the, um, the fertility to prevent having to uh, take so many soil tests to make sure to, ma- to maintain it. That that's it. That is a good reason to, to rotate. Um, another good reason to rotate is sometimes the effects of a crop growing before another one actually enhances the growth of the one after it. But the, the other is true as well. Sometimes the effects of a plant growing before it can actually be detrimental to the... Like if you're growing um, brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, col- uh, uh, collards, those type of things they actually don't have a symbiotic relationship with the fungi, and so they actually kill it off, suppress it. And so if you put a crop in after uh, you've grown brassicas there that heavily depends on that fungi, they're not going to do really well until, initially until they can get the fungal population encouraged again and, and growing. So you have to know something about the crops you're growing. If you're going to do that rotation to, to maintain your fertility balance and everything, well, like for example, if you grow Nebraska's, well, make sure whatever comes after it is going to be the least impacted by that type of thing, and other things that are high demand, like you may put them after legumes where they need a lot of nitrogen. Whether you rotate those in after, um, so there, there, there's value to the rotation thing, but the idea that you have to rotate in order for things to grow better is not true. It's it's just a matter of you've got to maintain the fertility. If something is pulling really and there are different families of plants because, you know, I think God just gave us variety so we could see different facets and taste different aspects of the character of God, you know, of life and everything. And so they pull more heavily on certain things and less heavily on other things to, to express it just a little bit differently that way. And so you have to, you have to be up on that to, to um, make sure that they have what they need. Okay, then the next group, and, and what we have here is you go up, as, as we look at the things we're looking at and going up, these t- tend to be, uh, like the protozoa here, we're going to look at nematodes. Uh, some of these, they start eating the other things. They consume the bacteria and the fungi, and then they get consumed. And, uh, and then in the process, nutrients are released. Like, for example, bacteria have a lot more nitrogen in them than the, the, the uh, protozoa and, and the arthropods and the ciliates and stuff. Or, uh, the uh, protozoa, yeah, and the, and the um, arthropods. And so when they consume them and they excrete what they don't need, well then nitrogen is made available to the plants and then the plants are, have to take that nitrogen out because they have different you know, nutritional profiles that they need and as you move through that process it just uh, makes stuff, nutrients available to the plants that they need in the form that they need them. Is that also true for when you plow Expose the bacteria and kill them, and then that ex- that releases the nitrogen to the plant. And you get a burst of growth. Well, usually when you plow, yeah, whatever you expose that gets dried out because of the moisture is not there. But actually, putting air into the soil will cause the bacterial populations to explode if the nitrogen is there. Um, that's remember we were talking about earlier when you if you keep plowing and you don't change the chemistry that you burn you should burn out the organic matter. What happens is you put that air in there. That stimulates their growth, having the oxygen there, and so they go after whatever food source they have. If there's residues and adequate nitrogen to break it down, they'll go after that. But if there isn't, they'll go after the humus in the soil, and they'll start consuming that. And then loss of the humus then removes um, structural components, and if the chemistry is not good, then it pretty soon it gets it gets worse and worse as you go along. So. Um, <clears throat> but it would kill off, you know, exposure to the sun and, and, and higher levels of air, uh, and the loss of moisture and everything. You would get some kill off of the population, but they'll just they'll just explode back, um, you know, where they're protected under underneath the soil. On oh, no. most cases for for people who are growing produce, growing vegetables and fruits, they're probably I didn't say that on the, fung, the, the, the fungi, but they're probably short. Fungi. The way most agriculture is practiced, it tends to destroy fungi and it, and it encourages bacterial growth. Um, and so, if you, I forgot to do that on the carbon fertility. We didn't talk about compost tea. You know, you know, you, making compost teas to to inoculate uh, um, microbes, bacteria, and fungal organisms and others. I used to actually bring humus in from Alaska. It was a native humus. And the world record holder for most vegetable production grew all of his stuff on this, on this humus. It's just incredible. It, it, it's just really productive. Not all the stuff up there in Alaska was like that. Um, and they dig it out because they're building houses they can't build on top of it, so there's just mountains of it. It's like a waste product to them. They don't value it for what it is. What that's not important. Huh? We've got to, we've got to start that. Yeah. Well, the problem is that people discovered it, and now that, that people have discovered it, and everybody thinks, oh well, now we can charge people for it. I used to bring it down by the semi load, and because the, you had semis who were coming back, they were hauling, you know, supplies up to the oil fields and and to Alaska and everything, and and they didn't have anything to come back with, so. They'd load up with that and bring it back, and you could get you could get the transportation costs pretty good, everything. But it started getting really expensive because they all of a sudden discovered there was a demand for it, and uh, so I went to just making compost tea out of it. And they don't even they haven't even been able to identify. There's tens of thousands of species of fungi and bacteria and everything, and most of them they don't even know what they are. Yeah, in there. And so I was using it. I just started using it, making a compost tea out of it, so I could continue to inoculate uh, my soils in the event. I, I mean, most soil biology has been wiped out because of the practices that agriculture has used, and gardening has used over the last few decades and everything. so when you so putting it back in is that we don't really know you know what the effect is going to be of all of these, but when they grow world record size, I mean I know the guy that I I know his brother, the guy who did that, uh, um, John Evans. I know Roland, his brother. But you know, he had a 24-pound celery. Yeah, celery is 24-pound celery. It was about it was about this tall. It was about this big around. Um, The uh, I can't remember trying to think of a a beet. He had a beet. You know, like a a red beet uh, that was. I don't remember how big that was, but I—I I mean the weight, but the beet was about this big. Oh. The so genetic. Let me just on NPK nitrogen oh. source that it was growing yeah. on. Humans. Just on, uh, yeah, on humans. That's all it was growing on. And he was—he was just making—he was pouring over it with compost tea too. He was growing in it, and he was pouring the compost tea on it and <laughs> and everything. But um, <clears throat> that's epigenetics going wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, it's—it's it's actually, you know, the genetic potential. Did you ever look at a plant and see how many flowers it puts on? And then how many flowers actually pollinate and produce anything? Yeah. The genetic potential of plants is way beyond what we're getting from them now. And you remember the pota- potatoes I told you about? The man- well, you know, just just think, if you were growing melons, you have you ever seen how many uh, flowers, you know, female flowers there are on there? What if every single one of them pollinated and was actually able to grow? I mean that'd be incredible. The reality is we're not meeting the genetic potential of these plants because they don't have the means to fully express those those genetics. So the further the further we can get down the road to creating the conditions for them to do that, the the more productive things will be. People always tell me we can't, you know, we we have to slow down the population growth because we can't feed feed the world. And the truth is we have plenty of food today to feed the population politics and and a few other things get in the way of of people actually being able to eat and and we throw away I mean I don't know what it's like here but it's pathetic in the US we throw away 50% you know 50% of the food that was produced mines up in the garbage or in a dump or in a landfill Um, we if I had a friend who grew potatoes for making they chipped them make potato chips and everything and they only wanted a certain size and shape and if anything was outside of that they would dump semi-loads of potatoes, just because they were the wrong size or shape or whatever, into the ravine and I thought, why not just um, give them to a food bank or to the people that needed them and everything. And he'd go out, my friend would go out with big gunny sacks and fill up as many as he could and give them away to as many people as he could, but I mean it's semi-loads. If they get, like the tree fruit industry, if they get a big crop and they've got a lot of smaller fruit, if they have a lot of big fruit but they have a lot of smaller fruit too, and rather than cause the price to be lowered because of too much fruit on the market, they just take all that smaller fruit and dump it in the landfill, and throw, it, throw it away. This it would make you sick to your stomach if you knew how much of this actually happened. You know, massive amounts of food, and that's not even counting um, all the food that's wasted when we buy it and then it goes bad, or we go to the restaurant and we, you know, we eat some, and they, dump, they wind up dumping you know, tons of it and everything. When you add it all up, it's, pretty, it, it's a lot of food that, that gets wasted. So, And that's not even taken into consideration. You can be, uh, uh, John Jevons at, um, uh, what does he call this place? Anyway, through, his, through deep tillage, he, he double digs his soil, so he digs it 24 inches deep. He works it, loosens it 24 inches deep. Um, And then he he plants high density, equidistant in there. And his yields range anywhere from 10 to 30, 40 times the, the conventional yields of produce on that. So the potential is way beyond what we're actually achieving. And it's a matter of creating the conditions so that we can actually benefit from that. So, you know, and on top of that, if people would, it takes way more resources to grow, to, to produce animal foods than it does to produce plant based foods. And so if you, uh, I don't have those statistics, sometimes I have them up here to show you how much more water and how much more land and all of that is required to, to produce those animal foods. So we're a long way from not having enough food to feed people. And, uh. Was John Jelvin a double digger? Uh, was he an activist? No. Okay, so we have there's different families here. I just put one of them. That's a uh, there's ciliates and amoeba and flagellates, uh, just different types of these protozoa in there. I didn't couldn't fit pictures of each one of them on there, um, but it, we're we're just looking at you moving up the food ch- food chain here a little bit and look at the you know what's the organisms that are that are in this process. There, these are nematodes. They look like little eels or little worms in the soil. Um, and you have saprophytes there that break down organic matter. You have predators that eat other organisms. Like, um, well, it's interesting. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't have a picture of it, but showing there are fungi that'll actually produce a lasso with their hyphae, and they'll actually grab a nematode in it, pull it, pull it tight, and then they've got them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to watch. They have videos of this stuff and pictures of it. You see, um, but we tend to look at all these in a negative light because we tend to look at them in the ways that they're they're damaging to our to our crops and everything. And there are parasites; they actually attack and damage plant roots and everything like that. But again, in a healthy growing condition, this doesn't happen very often because they have the food source that they need to, to prosper without doing damage, without resorting to hostility and destructiveness to, to do that. Um, these are arthropods. Pretty scary looking things, huh? Um, and there are shredders and there are predators. The Shredders, they break down like leaf material, you know, more coarse material. They shred it and shred it all up into smaller material and everything. Um and then use the other organisms come in and finish breaking it down and then they are predators, they eat nematodes and they eat uh, protozoa and they eat fungi and eat bacteria um, and again in the process they release nutrients, the surplus that they don't need for their metabolic activity is released into the soil and um, when we were talking about organic matter the vast majority of, of organic matter in the soil is actually soil biology, it's not plant roots or plant tops, it's actually the vast vast majority of it is is biology and so you remember I said that you can increase humus a lot faster than most people say you can by multiplying the populations, the biological populations in the soil and then multiplying the generations that's where you get more rapid increase, it's not from a a lot more increase in in, uh, plant residue it's from the increase in the biological populations in the in the soil. Okay, has anybody seen an earthworm that big before? No. 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 Is that CGI or what? Huh? Is that computer generated? Graphics? Yeah, I did. I I did it on a purpose because earthworms have such a big reputation a that I, I actually did this class the first time I used that one. I did this class and I said, this is a this is a, uh, uh, speech, uh, a um, type of earthworm that grows that big, that's that big, and everything. And everybody believed me. I had the Sabbath message at that conference, too. And, and at the end of it, I said, Now, because I was trying to illustrate to people, don't always believe everything that you're told. And I told them, I said, You know, I, I, there was something in my presentation that wasn't right. And everything, and um, majority of the people believe me. There were a couple of people who said, "Yeah, I knew that was not everything." With <laughs> uh, so anyway, I just put it in there because you know earthworms. When you hear people talk about earthworms, they, it sounds it sounds to you like they solve everything. They they can make everything wonderful and everything. Well, they are a critical, a very important part of the of the soil biology. Um, and they are a very good indicator that your fertility is increasing as you' you know it's interesting to me when we first came to the farmer on now, we, we hardly found a, an earthworm in the ground And three years later, uh, when we dig stuff up, they're all over the place. They come, where they Where were they and where where'd they come from? I mean they also showed up. But as the conditions are made right for things, it's surprising how they show up. So a lot of times they're just dormant or they're are their just they're sparse populations, but once they have the conditions to do so, they explode. They just they just multiply incredibly and everything. So one of the big one of the big myths is that um, that the earthworm can increase the the nutrient levels in the soil. That's not true. What they can do is they can increase the available nutrients in the soil. And so what's the difference? Well people get the idea that somehow or another if you're short something that all of a sudden they're going to manufacture it, they're going to they're they're make it um, exist and that's not true but they can make more available and particularly on trace elements they will make more available to the plant the nutrients that are there in their process and of course they do recycling because they, they, they break down organic matter um, and digest it leaving their castings behind which are highly fertile. That's the material that you know the the uh, nutrients are in a more available form in those castings. Um, and they also produce uh, they improve soil structure because they produce a lot of sticky, gluey um, compounds that actually glue uh, soil peds together. The, the crumbs they they grill, glue them together, stick them together, and they make bigger pore spaces and everything. Uh, but yeah, they're not Superman or anything like that. They, But they are a very good indicator. You know that you're getting the right direction when you start to see the earthworms start to show back up and start to, to proliferate in your soil. Um, and who knows? We had we had some night crawlers where I grew up as a kid in Pennsylvania that oh, almost that big, but not quite. Is it true that the just and yeah, they'll produce kind of a slime in the, in the process. Does lime in it? Is there a lot content in No, not more than is in the soil. It just makes it more available if there, is, if there is material there. They don't. The idea a lot of people give is that they balance your soil out. They don't. They just increase what's there. You know, they're not going to balance it out for you. Um, something else I was going to say about the earthworms. that when they tunnel that they create a, a good nutrient tunnel for the roots to shoot down? Well, the, yeah, um, yeah, I didn't mention this in tillage either. The, once your biology starts working in the soil and they start doing the tunneling and the, and the roots grow and then they decompose the roots and you have these channels for water to move through and air to move through and everything, you really don't want to mess that up if possible. So when you're doing tillage, you need to know what am I co- trying to accomplish. If you're only trying to prepare a seed bed, will it only work at you know a couple inches deep, and leave the rest of the profile alone? Um, sometimes you need to just start all over again, and so you will need to go and you till up the whole thing. Uh, here in Australia, they have a, a what's called a keyline plow. The, the Yeomans company builds a keyline plow. It's it's probably the best subsoiling tool, deep tillage tool on the earth. Uh, and it's it's incredible. When they designed it, you know and, and in America we just think we can just um, you know, just bull our way through everything and so every subsoiler we have there has these big fat teeth on the bottom of them and a big fat shank and you rip it through the ground and it just tears it all up and everything but the the keyline plow it actually goes down and it just slices through and at the bottom the way the, sh- the bottom is designed it just lifts and drops and in the process it just fractures does slight fracturing there and the channel allows air and moisture to get down deeper and in a cold time of the year if you have a cold time of the year you get moisture down there and you get freezing and thawing and it breaks the soil up even more it's a fantastic tool um, but again you know if you establish mycorrhizal networks in your soil if you establish these, these networks from uh, roots and earthworms and stuff like that you don't, you don't want to damage that if you don't have to in fact, there was some research done on summer squash. They wanted to see how effective no, not tilling and cover cropping and then rolling and crimping it down and using plastic mulch as a cover, you know, how much difference there would be in growth time and everything. And so they, they planted some just in the bare ground, plant some squash plants, summer squash plants in the bare ground. They planted some into where they had a cover crop of rye and vetch, and they roll and, rolled it down and crimped it and then they just planted through that. In other words, they didn't till it. The other, the other area they had tilled, um, this area they didn't till, they just planted through the, the rolled and crimped down cover crop. And then they did uh, plastic mulch over soil that was tilled. And then they did plastic mulch over the rolled and crimped uh, cover crop. And the difference between the tilled soil, the, 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 the yield time, the difference between the yield time between the tilled soil and the one with the plastic mulch over the crimped and rolled cover crop was six weeks came in six weeks earlier on the the crimped and rolled uh, ground with the plastic mulch over it because one they didn't disturb the soil so they didn't destroy all the mycorrhizal networks and all of that that had to be reconstructed and everything so the, the fungi went right to work as soon as they put the plant in there the relationship was established and it started tapping the resources in the soil. Whereas if you till it up, um, it, then it has to all be reconstructed and, and sorted out and everything and the, the mycorrhizal uh, networks rebuilt and, um, and so the, uh, so you, you it takes a while but to even get going because you, you don't have the systems in place to, to go. And the plastic mulch just warmed the soil earlier, just having the plastic mulch over that as opposed to, it was actually the, uh, the uh, the rolled and crimped one without the plastic mulch in came in second, not the plastic mulch over the the tilled soil. So even you know even with the rolling and crimping, it, it saved more time, not disturbing the soil there than it did having the soil warmed earlier from the plastic mulch. That interesting. Right. Do you remember where the study came from? It was out of Canada, and I don't I don't remember off the top of my head right now, on that. Okay, um, this is just a primer for soil biology. I put that up there, you know, for people. This is actually was actually done by the USDA in the in the U.S. by Dr. Elaine Ingham, everybody is, you know, um, wandering after right now with the biological um, approach and everything. It's a really good book, but there's a lot of there's a lot of books out there on soil biology. I encourage you to, to you know, look into it a little bit more, understand a little bit more how it all works together um, so that you can see how many things they actually wind up doing. You know, There's tons of stuff that this biology is doing in the soil. One of, one of the interesting things that's happened is we're, as we're destroying the biology in the soil with the chemicals that are being used and everything, um, we now have uh, synthetic polymers to hold water because we burnt the humus out it was the water holding capacity and the structure is no good uh, and so now they're, they're making synthetic polymers out of cornstarch and and, uh, and then people are applying that to the soil to try to hold water and because the, wa- the, because the biology and all the glues and the chemistry is not holding the soil together when it's washing away they're now producing um, compounds that will glue the soil, glues, that will glue the soil together to to hold it together. D- can you see that the, the more that you destroy the natural systems, the more that you have to have interventions to try to compensate for the for the fact that those things are not functional anymore. And that's that that'll just bankrupt you. I mean, eventually you can't you can't. And why would you? I mean, if it can all be done by organisms that are already know how to do that and do it really well. To um, anyway, that's it, that's. The end of this section, I usually try to leave this one a little bit short because I don't even know where our time is. Time's up? Okay. Alright, so does anybody have any questions? Or comments? If not, we'll just take a quick break uh, and we'll get on to the last one. It's a, it's a tool, it's a rolling tool that has metal at angles on it, edged, you know, piece of sheets of metal stuck up on it that are welded onto a wheel. And when you roll it, it pushes it down and it crimps the stems, it breaks it kind of breaks the stems. Yeah, and, and so that 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 kills the, the, the crop. It's usually with rye and vetch that they do it, and the rye winter kills. I mean, if you have to have a climate where it would winter kill or you have to use something that would die anyway. Um, and then the vetch, when they crimp and roll it, it kills it. And so then they don't have to go in and, and put anything on it. When we were talking about water, I'll, I'll do that when I get back. Just to remind me to talk about the infiltration thing and how plants actually make that work better too. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org.